1: Chuck continues his teaching on the book of Hebrews, chapter 2.
0: Yes, God gave Moses the law, in fact, letter by letter, apparently. But he used angels to do so, and that's both twice in the Old Testament and twice in the New. God came from Sinai with 10,000 holy ones. That term actually, it says saints in your King James, it actually is Uh, It was an Old Testament term for angels. If you were brought up with an Old Testament background, you would walk into this with a very high view of angels. That's important to understand what the writer is getting at as you go forward. They're ministering spirits. They're God's ministers all through Psalms. They also minister to God. They're They're His agents, if you will, but they're also those that minister to Him. They are holy. They surround God's throne. They're seeing do, they often are seen, uh, seen doing battle on our behalf. All through the Old Testament, we see that. An angel stopped the mouths of lions for Daniel. And uh, they sprang people out of prison several times in the book of Acts. They're assigned specifically to care for us, and this care begins at infancy. That's what we call them, guardian angels. Uh, angel. I was surprised to find the guardian angels is a biblical concept, Matthew 18.10. And they also continue throughout our entire lives. Psalm 80, 91 touches on that. The last verse of last time's lesson talks about angels that are sent forth to do service for the sake of them that shall inherit salvation. That's a very key phrase, by the way, that we brought out last time, but let me mention it again. Shall inherit salvation. Apparently, there's an aspect of salvation that's yet future. Not justification, that's past, but there's a part of the future. And we'll explain that as we go further. But it's interesting, one angelic role is to observe us. Do you know they're watching? Girls, they're watching. Guys, they're watching what you say. They watch our sufferings. And by the way, girls, they even watch what you wear. Just thought I'd mention that. Now, it'll take even longer before that mirror, won't you? Yeah, right. (laughs) When a believer dies, his soul is, is escorted to heaven by angels, Luke 16. Now, the writer picked seven Old Testament verses to support his proposition that Christ is superior to the angels. To you and I, that might, mean, might not mean a lot, but to the Jewish mind, that's a high watermark, man. And if Christ is superior to that, whoa, that's, prove it to me. That's tough. He's going to prove it not by his authority or anything else. He's going to show them in their scriptures. That's what it says. Bring, uh, 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 verse 6 of the last time's lesson. And again, when he bringeth a first begotten of the world, he says, Let all the angels of God worship him. That's the point. See, the angels will worship Christ. That proves he's superior. It's, it's right there in, in, in the Old Testament. Let all the angels worship him. He's quoting from Psalm 97. The point is that the angels are commanded to worship Him, thus Christ is above the angels. In verse 8, he quotes from Psalm 45, Unto the Son he saith, Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of Thy kingdom. Thy throne. See, the Father saying to the Son, Unto Thy throne, O God. This is a statement about the Son's deity. Angels do not sit on thrones, they don't rule. And how long is Christ's th- throne? A thousand years? No, forever and ever. Subtle difference. His reign is eternal. His throne is forever. The promise to Mary. Gabriel told Mary that her child is going to sit on the throne of David. Angels don't sit on thrones. Okay. And uh, thy kingdom. The, and that this is the kingdom. The thing that the illuminating thing, just to put in the back of your mind, is the kingdom we're talking about is the Davidic kingdom. It's not a kingdom in heaven; it's a kingdom from heaven, kingdom of heaven, of and from are identical words in both Hebrew and German. Kingdom from heaven; it has a capital; it's Jerusalem. It has a palace. The floor plan is in Ezekiel, and so on. It's a tangible kingdom that's coming. It's not some kind of fuzzy, fuzzy thing in the in the never never. Davidic covenant in Acts fifteen when they have the big argument: What does a Gentile have to do to become, become a Christian? James, the Lord's brother, chairs that meeting and quotes from Amos 9 that David's tabernacle is going to be rebuilt and that Jesus will take it. Now, Jesus announces a deity. He presents his position, his throne, his kingship, his reference to the scepter. All all these messianic insights are coming out right here in the early chapters of the Epistle of Hebrews. The excellency or impartiality of his reign. The completion, the the perfection of his character on earth, the place of his subjection, his reward in terms of being anointed. All these things are already laid out from what we've seen so far. And of course, his preeminence in all these things is the point. So I bring us to the next to last verse last time. We said, But to which of the angels said he at any time, Sit at my right hand until I make thy enemies thy footstool? God never said that to an angel. But that's what he said to Jesus Christ. See, the, the author is pointing out that Christ is above the angels. And he's just getting warmed up, okay? But see, from these arguments, we're not really troubled by that like a Jewish mind might be, but we're learning a lot about what's called Christology, the real nature of Christ. Sit down on my right hand till I make thine enemy's footstool. God never said that to the angels. But of course, he did say that in Psalm 110. In fact, Psalm 110 is one of the most oft, often quoted psalms in the New Testament. It's quoted 25 times in the New Testament, 10 times in this epistle. We're going to run into Psalm 110 again and again and again for a number of different reasons. By the way, this is the very verse that Jesus quoted to confuse the lawyers. You may recall that the the Herodians, the, the Sadducees, the Pharisees all tried to trap him and they couldn't do so. He says, let me ask you a question, okay? Christ, whose son is he? He said, the son of David. Then Jesus quotes Psalm 110 verse 1. How can Jesus call him Lord if he's a, if the son of David? How can he do that? If he's the son of David, how can, how can David call him Lord? And he quotes a Psalm that they knew. Gee, they, couldn't, they, didn't, they didn't know how to answer that. And I love the phrase that ends that, that passage in, in Matthew 22. They no longer ask him any questions. What most people miss, this is Psalm 110 verse 1 in the English. Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou at my right hand till I make thine enemies thy footstool. What makes this a puzzle is that Yodhe Adonai, the word Adonai has a Yod at the end of it, which makes it possessive. How can David how, uh, uh, call him Lord, Yodhe um, Adonai, my Lord? How can he call him my Lord? The, it's possessive. It's because of a yod. Now when you go to Matthew 5, 17 18, remember Jesus said, Think not that I come to destroy the Torah or the prophets. I come not destroy the, the, to destroy, but to fulfill. Verily I say unto you, till heaven and earth pass, one yod or one tittle. Shall no wise pass from the law till all be fulfilled. But a yod is the a little, one of the 22 Hebrew letters that you'd not, you and I would mistake for an apostrophe. But when that finalizes that class of noun, it makes it possessive. Christ's whole argument that confused the lawyers was hung on a yacht, just a yacht, and they couldn't deal with it. They gave up. One yacht or one tittle. Okay, let's get back to Hebrews, The last verse of Hebrews last time we were together. This is all this has all been so reviewed. Are they not all ministering spirits, angels, sent forth to minister for them who shall be heirs of salvation? Wow, the angels are ministering spirits, sent forth to minister to whom? Them who shall be heirs of salvation. People who are getting something about salvation that's yet future. Okay? Shall be. Okay? You and, uh, say, well, I'm already saved. Indeed. We'll talk about that a little further. A future salvation is in view. Shall be here. Justification for rega- towards a- everlasting life is not applicable. For that's a past event. When you accepted Jesus Christ, your passport was stamped justified. That gives you entry into heaven. You can't lose that if you tried. There's something else in view here. A future salvation, and we'll try to unravel that here shortly. Those justified already possess everlasting life. It is a gift, not a conditional inheritance. John 3.18. John 5.24. Ephesians 2.5 and 8. He that hath the son hath everlasting life, not will have, have everlasting life. If you're saved, if you've accepted, if you trusted Christ, you possess eternal life right now. And you can't lose it if you tried. Because it's been committed to the Father to protect. The Son gave it to the Father to, to, to seal. If you could lose your salvation, God loses something bigger than you. He loses his good word. If you, if you could lose your salvation, you got a new name for God. It's called Butterfingers. Because he's committed. John 10, verses 28 and 9, and other places. You, if you're justified, you're in his hands. You're his responsibility. That doesn't guarantee everything. It guarantees your entrance into heaven. Not bad, but there's more, is the point. Okay? You have a conditional inheritance that's also there. That's what this is really all about. See, those who are about to inherit are Christians. The readers of this epistle are Christians, and yet it's talking to them about that which for things that shall be heirs of salvation. What on earth is that all about? Well, was the word salvation, and we're not talking about being saved from drowning. We're not talking about being saved from a burning building. We're talking about what's called soteriological salvation. Soteriology is the study of salvation. It means what you're talking about here is being saved from hell, okay? The word saved can mean many things in different contexts, but here, of course, we're talking about it soteriologically. So soteriological salvation, justification, or deliverance from hell is never alluded to in Hebrews. It's taken for granted. And I'll show you that as we go. The writer and the readers are taking that part for granted, for good reason. But there's more to be talked about, and that's what it's dealing with. The salvation that's in view here is eschatological, that is yet future, it's the end times. What's what's coming for us later? I've got eternal life right now, whether I know it or not, I've got it. Well, wait, there's more coming, and that's what it's going to be dealing with. It's the future aspect of salvation, which is attached to Christ's coming kingdom, and the inheritance afforded to the believer that is in view in this letter. And don't take my word for it, I'm calling your attention to it, you check it as we go. Because unless you understand that, it's, you're going to get really confused. But let's test it as we go. Now, in order to attain the future that he, Hebrews is talking about, faith and works are required. You're not saved by works, but if you and we'll we'll we'll, we'll sort that as we go. Earl Rockemacher we meet once a year mm-hmm. at a at a study group that we're part of. Earl Rockemacher is a famous uh, is a fam- famous uh, theologian. He loves to come in and say, I am saved, I am being saved, and I will be saved. that's just his way of stirring the pot to point out that salvation has three tenses. And he's the one who points that out. What do I mean by that? The past tense of salvation is justification. That's a gift from God. Gift of everlasting life, and you receive it by faith alone from Christ alone. He did it all. To to try to add to what he did is blasphemy. On the cross, he says... To tell us, die. It is finished, paid in full. That is a comp- just your justification, paid for by Christ. It's yours for simply the trusting of it. Done. Now, I, I like to make a remark to get people's attention. Most people who get to heaven are going to be disappointed, and the reason they are is because they've been mistaught. Well, if we're in heaven, we're going to rule with Christ, and that's not what it says. It will be if so be. There's some, there's some footnotes. Getting into heaven? Yes, guaranteed. We'll talk more about that as we go. Sanctification is the present tense. That's not completed yet. That's a work in progress. Every one of us in this room are growing, hopefully. Every one of us in this room, me included, is a work in progress. I'm learning. That's why I enjoy my job so much. I learn something new almost every week. I know a lot more about all of these things than I did six months ago, a year ago, ten years ago. I've been teaching it for, what, 20 or 30. But I'm learning. And uh, we're, uh, all of us are progressive work that involves faith and effort and works and commitment. That commitment has nothing to do with my justification. Christ did that all. My works are just my own growth, and it hopefully will open more of an inheritance to me. That's the present. Now, the glorification of the future tense, and that's, that's a result of all the previous. Well, when the sanctification is complete then it's complete. All believers will be glorified, resurrected, given a body like Christ, but some will have more glory than others. At the judgment seat of Christ, there's going to be a great diversity from those that just got in by the skin of their teeth to those that have one or several of the five crowns or maybe more to those that are actually going to rule with Him. It depends on how faithful they have been. And uh, it's, a, it's a big spectrum. We're talking rewards here. There are rewards and they're diversified. And probably every one of us in this room will have a different kind of reward, depending on uh, how we show, what shows up at the judgment seat of Christ. And that's what the book of Hebrews is all about. P- present tense, separation from the penalty of sin. We call it the pre- the, 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 That's the past tense. The present tense is separation from the power of sin. The future tense, separation from the presence of sin. We call the separation from the penalty of sin justification. You're justified. You haven't changed, but the judge has declared you not guilty. So you've gotten that gift because Jesus paid the price for it. That's justification. You're justified by him, him alone. Present tense, separation from the power of sin. If you're a believer, you can call upon the Holy Spirit that will give you what you need to keep sin from reigning in your life. We call that sanctification. The future tense is separation from the very presence of sin. That won't happen until we're glorified. So we have justification, sanctification. We urge our students in the Institute not to use the word salvation because it's ambiguous. It's made up of three aspects. Justification, sanctification, glorification. Which one are you talking about? They all can be embraced, any one of them or all of them, by the word salvation. It's ambiguous is the problem. It's too broad a term. This gives you precision, and that precision is essential if you're going to know what you're talking about. Justification is for us. Sanctification is in us. Justification declares the sinner righteous. He may not have changed at all, but he's declared righteous as far as Christ is concerned. He's mine, he says. Sanctification makes the sinner righteous by calling up with the Holy Spirit to to govern your walk. Justification removes the guilt and penalty of sin. Sanctification removes the growth and power of sin. So they're distinctive. Okay, so last time we, had, we finished chapter 1. The Son's position is unique, as, we found, as Psalm 2 points out. The Son is the head of the Davidic Covenant, 2 Samuel 7. The angels worship the Son, Psalm 97. These are all the scriptures that were called in view in just the last part of the last chapter. Angels serve the Son according to Psalm 104. The Son is going to rule the kingdom in Psalm 45. The Son is the creator, Psalm 102. The Son is enthroned at the right hand of God, Psalm 110. Here we have seven verses just to get warmed up. This is one one chapter, right? But you notice the argument does not hang on whether Paul wrote it or whatever. To keep an open mind, Paul didn't write it. There it is. It's just a treatise. Does it hold water or not? That depends on your understanding of the Old Testament. If you're a believer and you accept the Old Testament, wow, you've learned a lot about the Son of God. I want you to notice the basis. The authority of the Holy Spirit's word. Not any apostolic authority or authorship. Paul, in this letter, Jesus is called the apostle to the Jews. So Paul isn't about to intrude on that office. That's why he didn't sign it. And also, it's more effective this way. They, the reader, knew it was from Paul, by the way. We'll find that out before we're through. So Hebrews 1, God has spoken. His revelation is complete and final through the person of his Son, in contrast to the prophets, all these other things. The deity of the Son is emphasized. Seven messianic quotations are thrown at you. Heirship and inheritance shows up three times in 14 verses, but we'll talk more about it as we go. The Son is heir of all things. He's superior to the angels by means of that inheritance. We're going to talk a lot about inheritance before the, this uh, uh, epistle is over. And Christ's supremacy in the present and eschatological future. He's, a, he's a, a, above all things. So he has more excellent name. He is worshipped by the angels. He made the angels. He's sitting on the throne. He's anointed above them. He himself is immutable and eternal creator. These are the main essence of the last 14 verses, uh, the last 11 verses of uh, chapter 1. And he has the highest place of honor. Okay, that now we're ready to start tonight's lesson. Right? <laughs> you say, gee, you spent a lot of time reviewing. I think it's important because we have new people joining us, but also it's important to have this fresh in your mind as we go forward here. Son is superior to the angels, by virtue of his deity, then and by virtue of his humanity, and by virtue of the salvation he provided. The warning number, the first warning will open up chapter two. He's going to make the case that the sons appear to the angels, but along the way, he's going to give us five verses, or four verses, really, of the first warning. These five warnings are going to be the main pillars for us in this. All five are a unit. They go together, and they will complement each other. There's one of these that causes a lot of confusion, but let's keep it in perspective. Each of these five warnings builds upon the other. Each intensifies until the fifth one is a final capstone. The writer relies heavily on Israel's exodus as an example or type of individual Christians. The wilderness wanderings. Paul in his letter to the Romans, chapter 15, verse 4, says, Whatsoever things are written aforetime were written for our learnings, that we through the patient and comfort of the Scriptures might have hope. Everything in the Old Testament is written for us as Christians. That's one of the great tragedies in the common church is that People think, well, the Old Testament is superseded by the New. No, 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 no. One book. They all tie together. The Exodus generation was a redeemed people. They failed to heed God's instruction and was judged for its disobedience. Over a million people were redeemed. Only two inherited. And Moses wasn't one of them. Man, that ought to get our attention. What's going on here? Five warnings. All were written to believers. They do not represent any chance of loss to the past aspect of salvation, which is called justification. That's not under threat. That's a done deal. need to understand that all the way through. Thus, the, the eternal security of the believer is assured. This is not an issue. That's where people get confused. The warnings admonish believers to press on and obtain all that God has promised to the faithful overcomer. That's what it's all about. The warnings represent the very real possibility of the loss of privileges or rewards that are offered to the believer. And this will all be revealed at the judgment seat of Christ. We all talk about the rapture, the harpazos is going to take place, great. What happens next? Well, on the earth, well, we got the great tribulation and all that. Wait, wait, wait. Up in heaven, what's going on? The first thing that's going on is the judgment seat of Christ. Everyone before that judgment seat will be saved. But the diversity of rewards could be enormous. And the only tears in heaven, I believe, will be because of lost opportunities. Not for sin or sickness. that's not going to be there. No, no. Why are there tears in heaven then? Why is God wiping away the tears from their eyes? Because they realize the the opportunities they blew. Oh, if I had just realized, boy, would I have lived my life differently. Really? Let's pay attention. To whom is this written? The original recipients were Christians. Each warning will substantiate that fact. The correct interpretation of the entire book hinges on the answer to one question. Were the people addressed, believers or unbelievers, saved, unsaved, or half-saved? I'm being facetious. Two dozen times the author includes himself in the warnings and the admonitions. We, us, whatever the author... <laughs> was the author saved? Yes. Were the readers saved? Yes. That's the, the, uh, and later, in chapter 10, I can ask you the question, does God urge an unconverted half-saved professor to hold fast to his false profession? I don't think so. And that's what he's asking them to do, which means they're obviously not unconverted. They are converted. He's telling them to hang in there. So why these warnings? Because God in his love and mercy saw fit to move the author of Hebrews to warn his readers. This letter God put in your laps to warn you. His love has caused him to put this in your laps. The author who wrote the letter loved his recipients enough to warn them of the impending danger. This is a a labor of love. Don't let the urgency of it hide the fact that it's motivated by passion on your behalf. God wanted future readers also to understand the grave danger that accompanies apostasy. And it ain't losing your salvation. What is at stake? What are these believers going to lose, forfeit, or suffer? Not salvation. John 10 makes that clear, verses 28 and 29. Rewards, of the judgment seat of Christ is at issue. We cannot escape this by applying it to other people. The burden of, the, of Hebrews is not the rescuing of sinners from hell, that's not the burden. It's the bringing of sons to glory. Five major warnings we encounter, the danger of drifting, the danger of disobedience, and then there's a group here, progress to maturity, and some lists make six and they make chapter five one a separate danger of its own, we're going to tie them all together because we think they go together, but on the, the most troublesome passage in the entire book is chapter six, verses four through eight. A lot of people read that out of context and say, oh my goodness, I can lose my salvation. No, there are 16 different views of chapter 6, and we're going to just focus on three of those, and I'm going to suggest that if you're paying attention as we go, there won't be any ambiguity in what it means when we get there. Okay, the next one is the danger of willful sin and the warning against indifference in chapter 12, and we're in a 13-chapter book. But today, we're going to just focus on the first of these five warnings, which I'm calling here the danger of drifting. So let's now we're, we made it. We're now into chapter 2. Therefore, we ought to give more earnest heed to the things which we have heard, lest at any time we should let them slip. The word therefore, this means this ties to what was go- previously said, right? So this points us back to the millennial glory of Christ in chapter 1.
1: You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of Hebrews. For a complete listing of resources available, please visit khouse.org. You can also call us on one 800 khouse one To learn more about Koinonia Institute, visit koinoniainstitute.org.